Luke 19, verses 29 through 44. And the title is, Two Triumphal Entries into Jerusalem. So Palm Sunday and Christ's triumphal entry, it's the same event. It's happening at the same time. Just different ways to designate. Um, Palm Sunday, because they laid palm branches down as he came into Jerusalem. Jerusalem Triumphal entry, he's entering into Jerusalem as the Messiah, the long-awaited Messiah. And there will be a, a moment where some of his disciples celebrate this, and then we'll see the way the rest of the nation. Then we're going to look into the future at an event that is yet to happen, but as the prophets have told us, Jesus himself has told us he's coming back again. It's what we're waiting for, is for the Lord to, to return, to set up his kingdom, and we'll look at that as his second triumphal entry into Jerusalem. Let's begin reading at verse 29. <clears throat> and it came to pass when he came near Bethphage and Bethany at the mount called Olivet that he sent two of his disciples saying, go into the village opposite you where as you enter you will find a colt tied on which no one has ever sat. Loose it and bring it here. And if anyone asks you, why are you loosing it? Thus you shall say to him, because the Lord has need of it. So those who were sent went their way and found it just as he had said to them. But as they were loosing the colt, the owners of it said to them, Why are you loosing the colt? And they said, The Lord has need of him. And then they brought him to Jesus, and they threw their clothes on the colt, and they set Jesus on him. And as he went, many spread their clothes on the road. So Jesus a week earlier, about a week earlier, was down in Jericho, which is near the Dead Sea, one of the lowest places on planet Earth. And while he was there in Jericho, a couple of things of, of note took place. Number one, he went and he had uh, dinner at the house of a tax collector by the name of Zacchaeus. You maybe have heard of this guy before. He's a wee little man. You, you, and, and, you know, so he was a guy that was up in that tree and the Lord called him down, went to his house. Zacchaeus repented, confessed Jesus as his Savior. And the Lord even said, hey, salvation has come to this house today. And so we have that scene. Now, as Jesus was leaving from Jericho down by the Dead Sea, this low spot, he's got to go up through the Judean mountains to get on top of uh, those where Jerusalem is. It's at the top. And so they make this ascent going up. But as he's going up, there's obviously, it's, it's many pilgrims are making their way from around the world to come and to go up to Jerusalem, coming from different sides, but this was a main way in which they would come up as well. And <clears throat> the worshipers are gathering, and there was a man on the street, a couple of them, that were begging, and we know his name. His name is Bartimaeus, blind Bartimaeus. And Jesus is about to come, and he's calling out. He hears that it's Jesus, and he's calling out, uh, you know, Jesus, son of David, you know, have mercy on me. And he's calling out and they're saying, hey, be quiet, be quiet. You're, you're disturbing him. And the more they said, be quiet, what happened? The louder he got. Just in desperation calling out. And Jesus says, bring him here. And he heals him. <clears throat> and it's, it's such a great story of how even when everybody else is trying to silence us and telling us to be quiet, that if we're desperate and we call out to the Lord, he will hear us. Does Jesus have time for people like you and me and blind Bartimaeus and even Zacchaeus? The answer is yes, he does. So he leaves from there. And as they're making their way up from Jericho, 
Um, this is where one of their many arguments that the apostles had over deep theological issues, like who was number one and who's number two. I think I'm more important than you. No, I'm more important than you. No, definitely I am more important than you. And they argued over who was the greatest as they ascended and, and went up into Jerusalem for the Passover feast. Jesus made it up into the town of Bethany. At Bethany is, is the place where Mary, Martha, and Lazarus lived. And Jesus was having a meal and celebrating um, you know, Lazarus has been raised from the dead, and it's a chance for them to just remember. Um, and so while they're having this meal, this is when Mary takes that costly bottle of perfume worth a year's wages. It's like, well, how much is that? I don't know. How much is it to you? Just put that number on it, because that's, that's kind of what the significance of the story. A year's worth of wages. And she cracked it open, and she poured it on the Lord and worshiped him. Jesus said, this she has done and anointed me for my burial. And Judas said, what a waste of money. You know what you should have done with this? You should have given it to me and I could have sold it and given it to the poor. But of course, we get the commentary about Judas that he was a thief among the disciples. And he carried the purse and he was constantly dipping into it. So this is, the, this is what's preceded this account so maybe just get a little feel of the, of, the, of the motion and the great things that are taking place. So now Jesus has made his way into uh, Mount Olivet, two miles from Bethany. Um, it's two miles east of Bethany. And um, this would, Mount of Olives would be, if you've ever seen a picture of the Temple Mount, like 99 times out of 100 is taken from the top of the Mount of Olives. And um, then you will go down, you'll walk down uh, this steep road, and it will take you down into the Kidron Valley. And then from the Kidron Valley, you would walk back up a hill again, and this would take you into Jerusalem where the Temple Mount was. So he's coming down, and this is where all of this is taking place. And it is a, a we call it a triumphal entry. Anybody that has followed the, the, the life and ministry of Jesus is immediately struck by the fact that he's going out of his way to draw attention to himself and actually fulfill a, a particular prophecy. Zechariah 9.9 says, Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you. He is just in having salvation, lowly and riding on a donkey, a colt, the foal of a donkey. So he comes riding in. Now listen, I, I don't know, I'm not a donkey expert. But I uh, did a little bit of reading, and if you, if you after service, don't do it now, but after service, look up uh, the back of a donkey. And does anybody know what you're going to find? You're going to find a cross on the back of a donkey. It's like that you have, it's going across the shoulder blades, there's a, a, a black uh, line you know, of dark hair, and then down the spine. I don't know if this is true for all donkeys, um, but it certainly is true for many of them. You know, I don't know what you do with that other than our Savior got on the back of a donkey knowing that he was going into Jerusalem to be crucified that week. So he, he makes his way down into there, riding on this donkey. Um, nobody had ever ridden on it. It speaks of the purity. It's like, well, that's not possible. I mean, how in the world could you get on a donkey that's never been broke? Well, the creator of the universe just said a little word to Mr. Donkey and said, you're going to be all right. Let me ride you. And um, it was okay. I mean, if you can get past, you know, Balaam's donkey speaking, this is not a huge hurdle, right? Um, 
So the, the creator is riding on this donkey's back and he's coming in and he's coming for peace. He's coming for salvation, we read there in Zechariah 9.9. He is uh, coming in a humble way. And so to come riding into a town on a donkey is a way in which a king could say, I'm coming in peace to you. I don't have any plans to destroy you or, or conquer you. But if, if a, a general was coming in or a, a king riding upon a stallion, it probably meant we either just dominated you or we are about to dominate you. So this donkey was significant of the peace that the king of kings and lord of lords was wanting to bring not only to Jerusalem, but to this entire world. It's like the Lord is reaching out and just saying, here you go. I've come for peace. I want you to know me. I want you to be restored to me. Because you see, here's, here's what the Bible teaches us. That God created man and woman in the garden and made them a special object of his creation, made in his image, and he loved them. And now they were able to have fellowship. And he said, but don't sin. And when they did sin, the fellowship was broken. What does that mean? Have you ever been in an argument with somebody? Okay, now you understand what it is to have broken fellowship. There, you did something that it entered in, but this, in this case, it, that was an eternal problem. And now man is separated from God. And right there at the very beginning of creation, when there was just a man and just a woman, the Lord said, I'm going to redeem you. I'm going to, I'm going to send you a savior. And the all through scripture is waiting for this moment. I mean, all through the Bible, Genesis, all the way through, is waiting for this moment right here when the Messiah would finally come in. That the seed of the woman who was going to defeat Satan and restore mankind back to himself and to remove the enmity and remove that division, it's right now. It's happening at this scene. It's a high moment in Scripture. It's a high moment for, the cre for creation because God is on the move to save and to bring peace into their life. So they're, they're put, putting the clothes down. It's symbolic. It's a way of showing respect. Um, it is a way to even maybe be trying to inaugurate a king. And the king and the kings, if you read through that, you'll find Jehu, when he was inaugurated as king, they laid the clothes on the ground. So it certainly is a matter of respect. It's certainly in, in light of everything that we're reading here about him being the king, um, it was a way to say, you are the king. And so you're like, we called this Palm Sunday, not Clothes Sunday. So where are the palm branches, right? The palm branches, actually, this is something that you will read of in the Gospel of John, where they laid down the palm branches. Now, the palm branches had no symbolic significance to the Passover but it did have significance to another feast that Israel celebrated. And it was the Feast of what? Tabernacles or the Feast of Booths. When they would set up those structures and they would put palm branches on there. It was to remind them of their wilderness wanderings and how God kept it. But why is a palm branch showing up here? Well, what most believe is that this was a way of speaking of liberation. Uh, when the Maccabean revolt took place, palm branches were a symbol of that revolt. Um, it also can be documented that during times of Israel's insurrection that there were minted coins that had palm branches at that time. So though it's not a biblical certainty to say it, it is a way of saying, save now. And it's fitting, as we will see with other scriptures that speak of the liberation, that 
Israel could expect for the Messiah to bring. So this is, uh, this is all going on. Verse 37, 38, uh, Jesus is praised by his disciples. Then as he was now drawing near the descent of the Mount of Olives, the whole multitude of the disciples began to rejoice and praise God with a loud voice for all the mighty works they had seen. So they had seen all kinds of things, hadn't they? They had seen Jesus perform miracles, a feeding of the 5,000 with just a, you know, a lunchbox full of food. He's, they saw him walk on water. They saw him cast out demons. They saw him heal a woman that had an issue of blood for 12 years. Saw him raise people from the dead. They were some of the people that had been recipients of, of, the, of the miracles that he had performed, no doubt. Some of these might have been those who had been delivered by demons, and they are with a loud voice. They are rejoicing. I think one thing we can draw away from this is Palm Sunday should be a time for us to recalibrate our praise. It's a good time for us to praise the Lord because what he came to do, he is still doing, and he's come to renew our relationship with the Lord, and we can celebrate this, and we should rejoice over this. And so maybe you're like, yeah, but you don't know everything that's going on in my life. You're right. I, I, I don't. And it might be very difficult. It might be the hardest thing that you've gone through. It might be the hardest thing that anybody in this room has gone through. So we're not downplaying the, the trials and tribulations of what you're taking, that are taking place in your life. But what we are told to do is that we should not measure the current trials and difficulties of this life with the coming glory of the next life. Imagine the scales, right? The old scales where you, you're, you're weighing it out to see if, you know, how much it, it weighs. Well, take all of your trials and all those burdens and weights that you're going through and put it on one side of the scale. Obviously, it's going to go all the way to the bottom. Nothing's on this side. But now take the fact that you've been redeemed and take the fact that the Lord has given you peace, that you know he is king and that he's coming back for you and you're going to be with him for all of eternity in heaven along with all who've ever confessed and known Christ, and there's going to be a, an amazing uh, eternity in life. And now take all of that and place it on the scale. Boom. It, if what is coming for you in Christ far outweighs what you're enduring in this fallen world right now. And you just got to reckon it to be so. Yeah, I mean, it's not to say it's not real. It is real. Pray about it. Let us pray for you. How can we help you? It's not that we're just saying ignore these things. We're just saying don't let them become a bigger deal than the fact that you're saved and you're redeemed. And that your Savior Jesus, the promised seed, has come into Jerusalem and will eventually at the end of the week end up dying on the cross, Good Friday, and will rise from the dead on Sunday, that being Easter Resurrection Sunday. So this is the big deal and we need to keep that. So maybe you just got to recalibrate your own praise this morning. But what is it that they're saying? Verse 38. Blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. Psalm 118 verse 26. But really if you read Psalm 118 verses 25 and 26. These are known as the Hallel praises from 113 to 118. Hallel meaning hallelujah. Each of these beginning with the word hallelujah. And so these are the Hallels. And they are... Um, this Hallel, um, Psalm 118, known as the Egyptian Hallel that was sung at the, at the offering of the Passover lambs in the temple, this is the one they're speaking of. And as they see him coming, they're saying, blessed is the king 
who comes in the name of the Lord. And you read on and it talks about how they, it says, save now, O Lord, save now. So as Jesus is having this spoken over him, um, some people are not very happy. Not very happy at all. Look at verse 39. And some of the Pharisees called to him from the crowd, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. And he answered and said, I'm sorry, I can't hear you because they're screaming so loud. Blessed is the king who comes in the name. No, he didn't say that. But that's, that's what I would have done. That's the kind of guy I am. But he's like, listen, you want me to be quiet? You, if I should tell them to be silent, the stones would immediately cry out. Does anybody kind of wish that he would have been quiet? <laughs> Just to see what would have happened? What would have creation done? Maybe we would have had the second miracle of a donkey speaking. You know, he says, listen, if I am not acknowledged as the king that is coming into Jerusalem, by these my disciples, somebody or something, even if we need to make it animated, is going to declare my entry on this day. And of course, they were unhappy because they knew full well the clothes on the ground, the palm branches on the ground, his disciples with those super loud voice saying what they're saying. And, and yet the Pharisees representing the nation of Israel here reject Jesus Christ. And his response to them, verse 41, was that as he drew near, he saw the city and wept over it, saying, if you had known, even you, especially in this your day, the things that make for your peace. But now they're hidden from your eyes. This event we're reading about, known as Palm Sunday, is a, a day that was prophesied and was spoken. We've already read Zechariah. But also you can read Daniel chapter 9, where in the prophecy of the 70 weeks, and I'm not going to take the time to go into it, but in this amazing prophecy... Daniel is told that when there's a decree given by a king to restore and build Jerusalem, Nehemiah chapter 2, that happens. And from that time until the Messiah, completely condensed interpretation here will be 483 years to the day. It's that day. He says, you should have known because we told you. The prophets told you what day it was coming. Zechariah told you that I would come riding upon a donkey. I've healed people. I've delivered people. I've, I've given sight to blind. I've given hearing to the deaf, speech to the mute. I have opened the word of the Lord and spoke it. You should have known about this day. He says, but now it's hidden from your eyes. Now his disciples still know, and they become the church, and the church goes off into the world, and they preach the gospel. So it's not all Jews are going to be blinded. But nationally, a blindness settles upon them. So as his disciples are speaking and shouting, um, it's not the whole city that's shouting this. Of course, it's just his disciples we read. But we do find a commentary about this in Matthew chapter 21, verse 10. And it says, when he had come into Jerusalem, all the city was moved saying, who is this? So at the, this, the Passover feast, jam-packed with people. No place to, to go. And the whole city, Matthew says, are asking the question, who's that guy that came in on the donkey? Who's that guy that they were laying palm branches down for? They, they were that Egyptian halal. Weren't they saying, blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord? And it goes on to say, save now. 
is, is he the Messiah? Is he the king? The whole city is asking this question. What a moment of opportunity for them. Right there in front of them. And yet, Jesus knows that the disbelief of the Pharisees is going to spread throughout this city in just a few short days and that he is going to be rejected. In verse 42, he says, this is a day meant for peace. Why did the Lord come? Why did Jesus come to this earth? Why would the eternal God dwelling in heaven feel compelled to leave that place of worship and glory and beauty to come and be born to the Virgin Mary and live 33 years on this dusty little planet. Why would he do that? Well, Luke 1, 77 through 79 tells us. To give knowledge of salvation to his people by the remission of their sins. Through the tender mercy of our God with which the day spring from on high has visited us. To give light to those who sit in darkness and the shadow of death. To guide our feet into the way of peace. There it is again. I've come, in, uh, I've come on this day to give you peace. He wanted him to have peace. Acts 10, 36. It says, The word which God sent to the children of Israel, preaching peace through Jesus Christ, he is Lord of all. The clear testimony of Scripture is this, is that man can have peace with God only through Jesus Christ. Amen. Now that's, you say, well, that's rather narrow. Yeah, I know. It's kind of like that with truth, isn't it? You're kind of like that with your truth. You know, this is how things are going to be done in our house. This is the way I like to get things done. And somebody comes up, you're raising your kids. Like, why do we have to do it? This is the way I want it done. But that's just a preference. We're like that with preferences. But here's an eternal truth. And, and so, yes, it is narrow. But that's the way truth works. And here is God speaking, saying, I want you to have peace. Because right now, you have enmity. There is separation. You have rebelled against me in your sin. And you're being self-willed and not acknowledging me as, as the God of your life. There is now enmity because of that sin and that rebellion. And Jesus says, I've come to bring peace. Because God's not willing that this should be the case with his creation. He loves them. And so he sent his son to bring peace. That inner rest that it all is well. You know how it feels when you make things right with that person that you've been in an argument with for a while, it feels good, doesn't it? And now you can get back to the way you were doing things before, right? Now you can laugh together and you can have a good time. You can enjoy what's all around you. And this is, this is what the Lord wants. He wants to, us to have peace with him. Jesus came to give peace to Israel. They're going to reject him, but he's still going to go to the cross and, and do what's necessary to bring us peace. The Lord is offering peace today. And there might be a, a huge turmoil going on in your life. And you may be wondering, well, what's going to happen when this life is over? There's so many things going on in this world. I mean, it's a crazy world. It gets crazier and crazier. What happens if, you know, Putin does this? What happens if a virus does that? What happens if, you know, the, this political party goes this direction or that direction? What's going to happen? What's going to take place? And we have all these things. I mean, what if gas keeps getting more expensive? And what if there is a food crisis? And what if the stock market crashes? And what if, well, we're all going to be in the same boat together. So find some peace, at least in that. You're not by yourself. We'll do it. We'll walk it out together with Jesus, right? But you know, all of these things, and it can cause so much turmoil, but, but the real question you should be asking is, what about my soul? 
When, what, is my soul in a secure place with the Lord? And Jesus came for the very purpose of securing a place for you in heaven. So we read here that he came for peace. Now this generation, they're going to reject him. And they're going to reject him. But you don't have to do that. You don't have to reject him. You can, you can hear the words of the scripture the holy scriptures that have been preserved for your instruction, for my instruction. And you can come to faith right now. You can come and say, I do believe that Jesus came, that he died on the cross and he rose from the dead to make things right. And I need that. Now you may say, well, I don't know if I fully understand all of that. Well, listen, the Lord says come. He doesn't say, you know, have a degree in theology before you come. If you know you're in a place where it's wrong and you believe that Jesus is the answer, and I would say, He's testifying of that to you in your own heart and soul right now. Because the Bible says there's none that seek after God, no, not one. And if you have that awareness coming to you right now today that Jesus is Lord and Savior, that's God at work drawing you to himself. Respond to that. Believe in him. Now for the nation of Israel, this, he says that now these things are hidden from your eyes there at the end of verse 42. And we read in Romans 11, verses 25 through 27, that this blindness has happened in part. But it's not going to remain there forever. There's going to come a time when Israel's eyes will be opened up. But nationally, they have rejected the Lord from this moment to the present day. Many, though, and I know many of you are out there, you're, you're Jewish. You, you come from that background and you... Believe that Jesus is the Messiah and, your, Messiah, and your heart breaks that your family and your friends, your countrymen, don't. And, um, but the day is coming when they will see. But let's keep on reading. Verse 43, um, Jesus speaks of this rejection, the royal rejection that he has just experienced. He says, For the days will come upon you when your enemies will build an embankment around you, surround you, and close you in on every side, and level you and your children within you, to the ground, and they will not leave in you one stone upon another because you did not know the time of your visitation. Again, that allusion to the very special day, right? You should have known. This is the day that it was on the calendar. I was coming. You should have known. And so he talks about the destruction that's going to happen in this city. And um, our, there's an archaeological witness to this destruction there in Jerusalem. If you are, um, you know, some of you are going to with us to a trip to um, Israel, and you'll see these sites, but you've seen these pictures before. This first one um, is at the southern end of the Western Wall. The Western Wall is where you see all the Jews praying, right? And um, if you go to the southern end of that Western Wall, this is what you see. So you can see, like, well, this looks like a sidewalk and a bunch of, you know, rubble and stones that are piled up there, and that's actually exactly what it is. And so when Jesus mentioned and prophesied that they were going to be surrounded and there was not going to be one stone upon another. Uh, this was 33 AD. In 70 AD, the general Titus, the Roman general, general Titus, came and he destroyed Jerusalem. And Jerusalem had a, a temple. So if you, you see this wall, if you were to go all the way up, it's just a retaining wall. If you were to go all the way up, um, you would go onto the Temple Mount where the temple that Herod had renovated and had beautified um, all kinds of gold upon it um, would have been. And so Titus gave the order. He says, listen, do not burn this thing, okay? Don't destroy this. This is amazing. But the conscripts that were in the Roman army at that time, it wasn't an Italian army that was fighting. Josephus gives us the, the, uh, 
uh, tells us what is made up is made up of, of mainly uh, people, their neighbors, Syrians to the north. And um, they ended up setting fire to the temple and all this gold that was on it began to melt and get into the cracks and crevices of, the of, of these stones. And Josephus records that the hatred of the army towards the Jews was greater than the loyalty they had towards Caesar. And so they burned it down. Well, to retrieve the gold, they had to begin to topple these stones. And you see them still lying there at this day. Right? So from 70 AD to this day, they're still right there. That's a witness that what Jesus said. There's another picture, which I realize is dark, but it's the best one I could find. And this is called the Burnt House. If you go there, you can walk into it. It's just a small little room. But in this, it's a house that was burnt, and you can see the remains of it, again, dating back to this very time. Another one, if you go outside of Israel, you go to Rome, there's the Arch of Titus, and it pictures this victory. But if you zoom in and go up close, you can get a, a better picture of some of the things that were taken. I've probably the only thing you can make out here is the menorah. Can you guys see the menorah? But also there's a table of showbread and there are the silver trumpets that the Jews used um, on Rosh Hashanah. So you have a, a witness that as Titus came in, he carried these things off. The stones were not upon each other. Jesus is a prophet. And what Jesus says comes to pass. And so we can have a confidence that what he has said would take place. And there are things that Jesus said that are yet to take place and I want to look at the most significant of all of them, and that is, he's coming back again. Jesus came the first time and they rejected him, but Jesus is coming back. He's going to come back to this earth, and we have a clear statement of this. Now, I want to begin by looking at that passage um, in Zechariah 9. I read Zechariah 9.9 to you, but let's read Zechariah 9.9 and 10. So verse 9, rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you. He is just and having salvation, lowly and riding on a donkey, a colt, the foal of a donkey. All right, so let's look at it. A day of rejoicing, his disciples did that. A day of promise that he was coming. He did come and he was crucified. Uh, of salvation, yes, he does save the individual. A day of peace, he came on a donkey. But now in verse 10 we read, I will cut off the chariot from Ephraim, one of the tribes of Israel, and from the horse and the horse from Jerusalem. The battle bow shall be cut off. He shall speak peace to the nations, he being Jesus. His dominion, Jesus' dominion, shall be from sea to sea and from the river to the ends of the earth. Well, you read verse 9, you're like, that all check, check, check. That all happened. But verse 10, you're like, wait a minute, that hasn't happened. It is, I, I love this verse, this prophecy of Zechariah, for a couple of reasons, because it's so specific about Jesus' first coming. And we celebrate the detail with which Jesus fulfilled prophecy written hundreds and sometimes thousands of years earlier about his coming. And Zechariah, a prophet, wrote hundreds of years before Jesus came, and we're like, look at that. He said he would come on a donkey into Jerusalem, and that's exactly what took place. But then in verse 10, he says, and I will cut off the chariot. So if you're a Jew reading this, before Christ came, you would expect, hey, the king's going to come into Jerusalem. He's going to be riding on a donkey. And when he comes in, verse 10, he's going to destroy all the armies. Who was the army that was in place at the time Jesus rode into Jerusalem? It was Rome. 
So it was, it's understandable why they would say, Lord, at this time, are you going to destroy these guys? Are you going to restore the kingdom now? Is now the time? Because when you read prophecies like this, you don't see in, in between verse 9 and 10. Time out. There's going to be a big space between the first and second coming. It just reads like it's one coming. And you can, there's just a good thing to think on and ponder on. I don't have time to get into that right now. But we do, we do know that there is going to be a second coming. And it's at the second coming of Christ that verse 10 is going to be fulfilled. That he's going to speak uh, peace to the nations. He's going to remove the implements of war. And there'll be dominion from sea to sea. There's going to be peace upon the earth. You know, people fight for peace. People, you know, are struggling for peace. And we should all be thankful for those that are employed to do that job because what a tough job that is. But you know, we look at the world and we say, well, we're still fighting wars. We're still attacking. We're still wiping people out. There will not be peace on this earth that sustained peace over all the earth from sea to sea until Jesus comes back a second time. And when Jesus comes back a second time, there's going to be peace. And the implements of wars, why, they're going to be turned into implements of agriculture. That's what's going to happen. It'll be a beautiful time of peace. But he is coming again. Acts 1.11. Then they said, men of Galilee, why are you standing here staring at the sky? This is at Jesus' ascension. Jesus has been taken away from you into heaven. And someday, just as you saw him go, he will return. Jesus is coming back. Or in Hebrews 9.28. So also Christ died only once as a sacrifice to take away the sins of many people. He will come again. But not to deal with our sins again. He already did that at the cross. This time he will bring salvation to all those who are eagerly waiting for him. And then in Matthew chapter 24. Verses 21 through 27, Jesus says, Before I return, there's going to be a great tribulation on this earth. And this is something that is yet to come. Jesus is coming back, but before he comes, there's going to be great tribulation on this earth. It'll last for seven years. If you want to read about it, Revelation 6 through 19 will give you more detail than you would ever care to hear. It is a, a heavy, heavy time upon this earth. There'll be wars, there's going to be famine, there's going to be disease. There's going to be persecution. There's going to be, uh, you know, a dictator that's going to make everybody worship him or they get killed. It, it, dark, demonic forces are going to be making physical appearances on planet Earth. It's going to be terrible. And, and this is what's going to happen. And Jesus said, that time will be like no other time this world has ever seen. But at the end of that time, Jesus said, I'm going to come back. The Lord is going to come. These events have yet to happen. But when Jesus comes back, what a day that's going to be. When he comes again. And you know what? Jesus is going to come back. He's going to come back riding on another animal again. Turn with me to Revelation chapter 19 as we wrap the study up. I want, we just read of his first coming. Let's read of his second coming. Now in this second coming, part of it is really hard to read. And you hear because it talks about the destruction and the death that's going to happen. Who's that happening against? It's happening against people that have gathered together to make war against God and to kill Jesus. You're like, oh, come on, that's ridiculous. Mankind would never gather together to kill Jesus. Really? Are you sure about that? Have you ever heard of this thing called Good Friday or the crucifixion? 
Jesus came once and the world gathered together to destroy him. When he comes back again, they're going to try and do it again. But this time, he's not coming to die on the cross for the sins of mankind. This time he's coming to rescue Israel. Basically, the book of Revelation can be summed up like this. It's about judging the nations and waking up a nation. The nation that God is trying to wake up is the nation that rejected him at his first coming, Israel. So let's read. Now I saw heaven opened, and behold, a white donkey? Mm, White horse. And he who sat on him is called Faithful and True. And in righteousness he judges and makes war. This is not an unrighteous war. This is a righteous war of judgment upon evildoers. His eyes were like a flame of fire, and on his head were many crowns. He had a name written that no one knew except himself, and one other commentator that I read who said he figured it out. But that's another story. Verse 13, he was clothed with a robe dipped in blood, and his name is called the Word of God. And the armies in heaven, clothed in fine linen, white and clean, followed him on horses. It's not angels that are riding these horses. Who is it? It's believers, it's the saints, it's followers of the Lord. So if you don't like a horse, I don't know, get used to it. You're going to ride one. You're going to come back on a horse. Clothed in fine linen, white and clean. Verse 15, now out of his mouth goes a sharp sword, that with it he should strike the nations. And he himself will rule them with the rod of iron, and he himself treads the winepress of the fierceness of and wrath of Almighty God. So judgment upon the nations. Again, verse 16. And he has on his robe and on his thigh a name written, King of kings and Lord of lords. Then I saw an angel standing in the sun, and he cried out with a loud voice, saying to all the birds that fly in the midst of heaven, Come and gather together for the supper of the great God, that you may eat the flesh of kings, of captains, the flesh of mighty men, both slaves, small and great, free, small, free and slaves, small and great. And I saw the beast... The kings of the earth and their armies gathered together to make war against Jesus, him who sat on the horse, and against his army. Then the beast was captured, and with him the false prophet, who had worked signs in his presence, by which he deceived those who received the mark of the beast and those who worshipped his image. These were cast alive into the lake of fire burning with brimstone, and the rest were killed with the sword which proceeded from the mouth of him who sat on the horse, and all the birds were filled with their flesh. So it's a, it's a triumphant passage, and it's also a dark scene, isn't it? It's a scene where Jesus comes. When Jesus came to Jerusalem the first time, as we just read, they ended up taking him and beating him and mocking him and humiliating him and killing him upon the cross, the Son of God. The next time he comes, he's coming to judge the nations. And, you know, this is, don't think of like, you know, oh, this is the return of the king and there's going to be fighting with him. It's not going to look like that, okay? It's not going to be Jesus clinging swords and, oh, the, the team Jesus is winning. Oh, now, you know, team Antichrist is coming back. No, it's not like that at all. We read in, in, in the book of Genesis that God spoke and the world came into existence. Hebrews tells us that he holds all things together by the word of his power. Colossians says that in him all things consist. So when the Lord returns, he's simply going to speak a word. The sword of his mouth will go out. That's a metaphor for his words. He'll just speak a word of destruction. They'll go against these nations that have gathered together. And what's going to be happening at this time? These nations have gathered to destroy 
Jerusalem. And there'll be armies all over the land of Israel. And then Zechariah 10.10 will be fulfilled. And the armies that have gathered will be destroyed. And right after that, that happens, Jesus will set up a thousand-year reign upon this earth. And there will be peace. And there won't be the famine. And there won't be the disease. It will be a beautiful time. And God say, will say, like this. This is what I intended for it to be. Like this. And Israel will come to salvation. Interesting. When Israel had Jesus the first time, and they were rejecting him and pushing him back, Jesus said to them, I think it's Luke chapter 13, he said to them, you will see me no more until you say, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. That Egyptian Hillel, Psalm 118, verses 25 and 26. Now, when Jesus came in on his triumphal entry, his disciples said it, but the nation rejected it. I believe that as Jesus said in Luke 13, you will see me no more until you say, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Essentially, let's do this all over again. You need me to come, but you got to call for me to come. And it will be in this last hour of the tribulation when Israel is about to be destroyed. There will be a small remnant that still remains that God will open their eyes to know that Jesus of Nazareth, whom they rejected thousands of years earlier, was truly their king and their Messiah. And at that moment, they're going to say, save now. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. And they're going to call out. And that's when the stables in heaven are going to get open. And those horses are going to be saddled. And they're going to be mounted. And Jesus is going to come back. And he's going to destroy the armies that have come to destroy his people. And then the Lord will rule and reign upon the earth. So the first coming of Christ into Jerusalem. So highly significant, isn't it? For our salvation. To redeem us. To die on the cross. He took the penalty for our sin. But when he comes back the second time. He'll be coming to rescue a nation that he has made promises to. And we will be with him. And we, as the scriptures say, will rule and reign. No, scripture talks about how today is the day of salvation. And that we should respond. 2 Corinthians 6, 1 and 2 says, We then as workers together with him also plead with you not to receive the grace of God in vain. For he says, and in an acceptable time I have heard you, and in the day of salvation I have helped you. And then this line, behold, now is the accepted time. Behold, now is the day of salvation. Today, for you. If you've never come to the Lord, then today's the day to get saved. Don't be like the first, you know, a century generation that rejected Jesus Christ when he came for peace. It's like, well, I know this stuff is true, but I'm just not ready. But are you sure God's going to be ready for you tomorrow? He's ready for you today. He may not be ready for you tomorrow. Have you ever thought of that? It's like, well, when I'm ready, I'll come. But will he receive you at that point? I mean, we all know in relationships, you can't just push people away forever and expect it to have no consequences. And the Lord has said, I will not strive with man forever. And so if you have an, a, this awareness in your mind that Jesus is a Messiah and he died on the cross for your sins and you need to call upon him, then guess what? Today's the accepted time. Today is the day to get right with the Lord. And if you are one that has come, then don't receive the grace of God in vain. You know, allow that grace to impact your life the way it should. 
We are followers and disciples of Jesus Christ. We've not received grace that we can sin and say, well, the grace will cover. No, we've received grace that we might walk in holiness and righteousness to the Lord. And so receive and walk out your salvation the way it has been intended for you and for me to live our life. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this great description of what has happened historically, but this great prophecy of what is yet to come. Lord, we see the detail with which your son prophesied of the destruction of Jerusalem, and we can see pictures of it. We can go and touch the things that he said would happen. And we believe what he said is going to take place, that he would come at the end of the tribulation, is going to take place. So, Lord, ready our hearts on this day of celebration, Palm Sunday. Would you ready our hearts, Lord, for your return? If you are here and you don't have that peace with the Lord, you've heard about Jesus your whole life, but you've never come to him, then right where you are, why don't you get right with God? He's opened your eyes. You can feel him tugging on your heart. Respond to that. And say, Lord, I'm done running. And yeah, you don't know everything yet. The Lord will show you as you, you grow in this relationship. But come to him. Receive him. Be forgiven of your sins. Oh, so what an awesome thing it is to when somebody says, I forgive you. But God wants to say that to you. And if you will come to him, he will say, you're forgiven. Because he's already done all the work on the cross. Now it's a gift to you that you must receive. You can reject it. We just read of a nation that did. But it's not very advisable. And if you are the one that has come, then are you walking and living out the salvation you've received in the manner with which God has given it to you? We thank you, Lord, for your kindness, your patience. Lord, who is more patient than you? Waiting all these thousands of years for people like us to come to proclaim you as Lord and Savior. Thank you for your patience, Lord. We pray you draw people to yourself and that we would live holy and righteous lives. And it is in the name of Jesus we pray. Amen.